fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Father, thank you for this opportunity to explore uh, such an incredible topic of the hope that we have because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, I do pray that uh, my words would be clear and helpful and faithful. Father, that everything that needs to work would work. And uh, Lord, that ultimately our hope would be uh, encouraged and demonstrated to be well-founded because of the victory that was won by the Lord Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Well, a big welcome. Um, It's great that you're here, particularly if you're visiting. Wonderful that we can spend this time this morning. And uh, great that you've joined us for this particular series, because it's a series that we've called uh, Answers for a Questioning World. And we're looking at particular topics uh, that... Our society is asking questions about, and today we are looking at the whole topic of hope, okay? 
This morning I've got five points for you. I've got a little bit of an intro. Uh, Then I've got hope's ultimate enemy, hope's sure foundation, hope's content, and how real hope transforms. So you know where we're going. Uh, Because uh, hope, I think... uh, People have demonstrated. There was, a, there was a man by the name of Martin Seligman. Is any any psychology boffins here? You'd know Martin Seligman. Seligman. Martin Seligman was a man, uh, and he still is a man, uh, whose area is the whole area of learned optimism, uh, positive thinking. Uh, he's uh, pursuing this whole realm of positive psychology. And he has demonstrated quite convincingly, I believe, that people cannot live without hope. We are hardwired for hope. But as a society, we've actually turned away from the source of hope that for so long it fed our culture. Our society was substantially influenced by the Christian gospel, and so we had a Christian-shaped hope. We generally believed in a life that continued after death. We believed in the resurrection of the dead. But our world, our society, has turned away from this. And last century, really, we started to put our hope not in the fact that God would actually uh, deliver us and transform this world, but that we would deliver ourselves and transform our world ourselves. Now, you might remember there was a man by the name of H.G. Wells. He wrote a uh, fairly famous book called uh, War of the Worlds that was turned into a radio play and so forth. It's had many movies and all sorts of things. But H.G. Wells was not just a science fiction writer. He was a bit of a philosopher and a bit of a historian. And in 1939, he published a book called A Short History of the World. And in it, he says fairly optimistically, I think, he said, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realise its boldest imaginations, that, we will ach- that it will achieve unity and peace in an ever-widening circle of achievement. Look at the publishing date on that, and if you know history, it's interesting, because not long after this book hit the shelves, uh, World War II broke out. And in 1946, H.G. Wells followed up that quote with a book called A Mind at the End of Its Tether. And he wrote this. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenceless, the return of deliberate and organised torture, mental torment and fear to a world for which such things had seemed well-nigh banished, has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. Just a few years to go from we can deliver ourselves to homo sapiens is played out. So we turned away from this idea of innate human goodness by and large. We maybe became a little bit realistic, but we were still hearing the stories that our technology would advance, that our economic progress would give us a level of comfort, a level of security. It would solve the ills of this world. Disease would be cured. Hunger would be eliminated and we would live comfortable lives. That doesn't sound very credible, does it? Just a few weeks ago, the doomsday clock, which uh, 
a group of scientists invented a little while ago, it moved to 100 seconds from midnight. Midnight is the point where everything falls apart. And 100 seconds to midnight is as close as it has ever been. The doomsday scientists are telling us that hope is on fairly shaky foundations. When we look at our media, we see this. What are the stories that we love to tell? Well, just go to the movies. It's out there in spades, this dystopian future. We read about these worlds that have been devastated by social unrest, by disease, by economic and environmental crises. Our society is losing hope. We're seeing it, aren't we? And maybe we feel this. We see an increase of fear, of anxiety, of anger. The voices that are speaking are sounding more shrill, more angry, more desperate. If you hadn't noticed, there's something called the novel coronavirus that is uh, causing a lot of people a lot of concern. Let's go a little bit further. There's something called climate change that is creating its own psychological problems. There is now a diagnosable phrase, I understand, called climate change anxiety. That is there. And we have voices like Greta Thunberg. This is from her speech to the UN, where she chastised world leaders. And whether you agree with her or not, Listen to what is in this statement, the anger, the frustration, the fear, perhaps. She says, this is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. The voices are getting more strident, more shrill. She accuses the world leaders of destroying hope. Our society is somewhat unnerved, I think. Uh, we have dreamt materialistic dreams. We have told ourselves that the good life, that utopia, that heaven could be found on earth, but now we are realising that that is going to look much, much harder than we ever thought was possible. The promises that people were making to us, that maybe we grew up hearing, look increasingly unlikely to deliver. But can I give you something that's even worse? Because there is an enemy that is not climate change. There is an enemy that is not coronavirus. There is an enemy that is hope's ultimate enemy, and that ultimately is death. And the Christian faith doesn't back away from this. In verse 26 of the passage that Karen read to us from 1 Corinthians 15, helpful if you've got it there open in front of you, so you can follow along. In verse 26, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, describes death as the final or ultimate enemy. The final enemy is death. And Paul, in his argument, if you followed it along, you could summarise his argument in saying, if death wins, Christianity is a fraud. 
verse 14, he says, if death wins, faith and preaching is empty. In verse 15, if death wins, they are telling lies about God. In verse 17, if death wins and there's no resurrection, forgiveness is a figment of your imagination. He says you are still in your sins. In verse 18, he says those who have died with their faith in Christ are lost. And verse 19, he summarizes and he says, let me paraphrase, If death wins, Christians are the most pathetic people on this planet. We are to be more pitied than all people. The Bible doesn't run away from the fact that death, if it stands, is the ultimate enemy. And the Bible doesn't say, well, false hope, it's better than no hope. No, Paul says false hope is worse than no hope. Because if you've got false hope, If Christians have put their trust in something that can never deliver because death wins, we're pathetic. We are to be more pitied than all people. But is is it just Christians? Does death only have it in for us? Well, obviously no. Let me... um, Let me give you a quote. This is a guy, Tim Lane. He's an Australian. He wrote a book in 1993 called God, the Interview, uh, where he presumed to uh, have a face-to-face interview with the the Almighty. Uh, And uh, this is is supposedly God's word to him. Uh, He's talking about eternal life, and he says, no, you get one go at life, and that's it. No reincarnation, no heaven, no hell. When it's all over, we come into this world, we fill in some time, we return to the earth. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Is that how you like to think of your life? This man's an atheist. He makes no bones about that. We come into the world, we fill in some time, and then we return to the earth. It sounds like... Death is an enemy that the atheists don't have an answer for either. They tell us we should just accept it. We should just stop pretending. And Jamie Smith summarises their argument. He says, we settle for temporal, time-based happiness, or at least incessant distraction. And I think this is what our culture is really, really good at. This is why we love entertainment, we love movies, we love sports, we love computer games because they take our mind off the big things. We just distract ourselves. We settle for temporal happiness, time-based happiness, or at least incessant distraction as a trade for some vague promise of immortality. He says nobody really wants to live forever, but no one wants to die either. No one wants to live forever, but no one wants to die. If you've been to a funeral, we don't call them funerals anymore. What do we call them? They're celebrations of life. I went to my uncle's funeral not that long ago, and it really struck me. My uncle was a larger-than-life figure. If you met him, it was hard not to love Ian. Uh, He was the party boy. He was the guy that pulled every person in the street into the big street parties and he'd be there in outrageous costumes and he was the life of the party. But the one thing that stood out to me about that funeral is all the joy had stopped. It was all in the past. We were celebrating 
what was, but now wasn't. Do you see that? Death had won. No matter how good life is, when it's over, it's over. And after just a brief span of time, this world will forget you. This world will forget you. How many of us can name each of our great-grandparents? And if you know anything about them, including their names, do you know anything more about them? That's just a couple of generations of people who are biologically dependent, we're dependent upon, descended from, but death has swallowed them. Death makes all human hope vain. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian novelist, he wrote this in his book, A Confession. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? We feel that, don't we? I can remember taking a funeral as a young clergyman. It was one of the things I did a fair bit of in a previous role. Thankfully, I don't do it as much anymore. I don't really love taking funerals. Um, But I stood at the end of the grave as the coffin was being lowered in and Sinatra was playing. Uh, If ever I take your funeral, uh, Sinatra will not be playing, sorry. I did it my way. Do you see the irony? And the coffin was lowered six feet under and the dirt was pushed on top. You did it your way and you're dead. And that's it. But that's not it. And the Bible has an answer. And the Bible offers a hope that conquers death. And hope's sure foundation is built upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the cornerstone. This is the foundation upon which the Christian faith is built. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, no resurrection, no Christian faith. So if you are here this morning and you're not someone who has put your faith in Christ, disprove the resurrection and you've got every reason to walk away. But if you can't disprove the resurrection, if the resurrection stands, you must accept that Jesus is who he said he is. The Bible tells us, this is Paul's words, he says, Christ has been indeed raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says, Christ has been raised and those who are Christ's will also be raised. That Jesus is like the first fruit on the vine, the promise of a much bigger harvest that is to come. Paul says that his resurrection... Not Paul's, Jesus' resurrection. It promises that ours is coming. So verse 23, as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. That is the promise. Jesus' resurrection promises our resurrection. How does it work? Because the Bible links human rebellion against God, what we call sin, with death's reign in our world. Go back to Genesis 
chapter 2 and God tells Adam and Eve on the day that they disobey, on the day that they eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day they will surely die. Death is not part of God's his plan. Death is part of sin destroying and distorting God's purposes. But God will not let that stand. And so as Jesus comes in and dies on the cross, as Jesus comes in and deals with sin, he deals with its consequence and he deals with death. And so the writer to the Hebrews can say this in chapter 2. He speaks of God's people as his children. The children have flesh and blood, so he too, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death jesus has not only paid for sin he has broken the reign of death jesus's resurrection it's physical The Bible tells us that. It's not a spiritual resurrection like some kind of ghost. You read the resurrection accounts. Jesus eats with them. They touch him. They embrace him. It's a physical resurrection. And Jesus proves that he is there. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. It says that Jesus, through many convincing proofs, proved that he was alive over a period of 40 days. It's a physical resurrection, not a spiritual one. It's historical. It happened. Not some kind of, like some people who find resurrection from the dead difficult to deal with. They say, oh, Jesus was raised into the life of the church. No, Jesus was raised from the dead in history. How can I be so sure? This is what Paul says. Now, there's lots of arguments you can make about the resurrection. You may have been used to dealing with people and talking with people, or maybe someone's talked to you about, you know, why the tomb was empty, you know, how the disciples couldn't have stolen the body, or hallucinations, all this sort of stuff. Paul doesn't go down that line. Paul says quite simply, I know Jesus was raised from the dead because I saw him. And it wasn't just me, it was loads of others. He said, we witnessed it. We had eyewitnesses. So Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day according to scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. And then to the 12, that's the apostles. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. It's not a mass hallucination. They were all seeing the Lord Jesus, most of whom are still living. Why does he tell them that? Because he says, you know, Corinthians, you could get on a boat, you could go to Jerusalem and you could find these people and you could ask them. He says, then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brother, then to all the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Paul here says, Jesus rose from the dead and we are witnesses. This fellow here, Wolfhart Pannenberg, you probably haven't come across him, but he's a theologian of some note. He said the early Christians could not possibly have preached the resurrection of Christ publicly and successfully 
unless both the empty tomb and these hundreds of eyewitnesses really existed. You can't stand up and say something that everyone can just demonstrate is false. You can't do that within 40 or 50 days of the person being executed. The body doesn't disappear unless he's been raised. But you know what the biggest thing is? Each of those witnesses, they bore a cost of their testimony. You may know the, uh, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal. He said quite brutally, I thought, uh, I prefer those witnesses who get their throats cut. Okay? If you're prepared to die for your testimony. Well, here are the 12 apostles. Matthias is there replacing Judas. So James, John, Peter, Andrew, Matthew, Nathaniel, Thomas, Matthias, Thaddeus, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon and Philip. Now, church history records their fate. Two of them died of old age. One of those was in prison when he died. That's John. James beheaded, Peter crucified, Andrew crucified, Matthew stabbed, Nathaniel flayed. That means skinned. Thomas stabbed. Matthias, just to make sure, he was stoned, then beheaded. Thaddeus was crucified. James was stoned, then clubbed. And Philip was crucified. These men stood up and testified that Jesus was raised from the dead. If they knew it was a fraud, would they do it? No. They spent their lives, they gave their lives to tell the story of the risen Lord Jesus. And it's so convincing that even the Jewish Rabbi and historian Pinchas Lapidi says this in his book on the resurrection of Christ. He says, how was it possible that his disciples, who in no means excelled in intelligence, eloquence, strength of faith, were able to begin their victorious march of conversion? In purely logical analysis, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils. He doesn't like it. He's not a Christian, but he actually says, thus, according to my opinion, the resurrection belongs to the, the category of the truly real. So a Christian hope is not like Matt's hope. I hope my aeroplane might get to the back of the, uh, of the hall. It's not gazing into a misty crystal ball trying to guess. It is actually not looking forward in some vague, uncertain terms. It's looking back to the historical, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's unpack it a little bit more. What's it like? It's personal. Some religions have this idea of a life that continues after death, where you get absorbed back into the one and you kind of don't exist anymore, but you're being united with the life source, with, the, the, with God. That's not the Christian vision. We have a personal resurrection where each of us will be personally with the Lord Jesus. The biblical image is one that is highly relational. It's not just a mass of spiritual life. It is actually being together. The images in the Old Testament and the New Testament are images like parties and banquets and feasts. It's intensely personal, intensely relational. 
It's physical. The resurrection isn't like Star Wars, you know, where these Jedi ghosts came to pop up and you can see through them. No. Jesus ate dinner. I didn't see Obi-Wan Kenobi in Return of the Jedi eat dinner with Luke. But Jesus ate dinner with the disciples. And he went out of his way to prove that his body was a physical body. That we don't end up as disembodied ghosts, you know, uh, stuck on clouds. That's not biblical. We don't end up wearing white robes with halos and harps and endless choir practice. Although some of us could probably benefit from the choir practice, probably myself included. But that's not the image. It is physical, it is personal, and it's not just us. Because the hope that we have is not just that we will continue, it is that this creation will be remade. This creation will be restored. This creation will be perfected. The Christian hope, the biblical hope, is so much more than just, I will be in heaven. It's that heaven will come to earth where God will set all things right. And you have this beautiful promise of Revelation 21. No more mourning, crying, tears and pain. The old order of things has passed away. I will be their God, they will be my people, and I will wipe every tear from their eyes. What a promise. It's wonderful. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, if Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead, if he is really the son of God and you believe in him, all these things you long for most desperately will come true at last. We will escape time and spelling mistakes and death. (laughs) We will know love without parting and we will see evil defeated forever. All those things that you long for most desperately will come true at last. That is the promise of Christian hope. That is the promise that the resurrection of Christ guarantees for all who have put their faith in God through him. Now, last week I added a little addendum. I've got one this week too. Because I want to talk about why this just isn't pie in the sky when you die. A lot of people go, Christian hope, you know, resurrection, what does it mean now? Can I just say it has some radical implications now? And I just want to give you three. It empowers sacrifice. You know, if you're, um, if you're like me, um, there's a, a level of cynicism that comes in when I hear some of the debate. Because we deal with a world, and, and I'm quite happy that we have climate change. Quite happy that... I'm not happy about it. I acknowledge that it is real. I'm not a climate change denier. But if we need to address this, it's good that individuals take responsibility. But Australians, are we prepared, particularly those new Australians down the back who've just signed up, that's good... Are we prepared to take the hit to our standard of living to enable the third world to pick up 
renewable energies at the level that they need to, to make a difference. If the people I'm reading are correct, half the emissions come out of China, another quarter out of India. Australia, significant per capita, okay? We do a lot, partially because we're such a huge nation and transporting anything takes a lot. But are we prepared to make sacrifices so that the Indians, so that the Chinese, so that the people who don't have the benefits that we have... Imagine a politician standing up and saying, we're going to jump your tax level. We're going to jump it to 60% for the base and we're going to cut your standard of living by half. Would that person get elected? Not in a million years. Let me tell you why. Because if you are dreaming material dreams, if your vision of heaven is to have the best life you can in the time allotted. Why would you sacrifice? Why would you? Because if I give up my income, if I give up my standard of living, so someone else could have something better, I miss out and I don't get another chance. I only get this this period of time. And so can I suggest a materialistic worldview, a view that has... Only this span of years in view, it feeds selfishness. Inevitably, inevitably, if the whole point is immediate pleasure, sacrifice makes no sense. But Christians don't believe the whole point is immediate pleasure. We're not looking for a fulfilment of all our hopes in this life. And so sacrifice is empowered. Sacrifice now doesn't mean you miss out. Jesus himself said, those who've left mother, father, brothers, sisters, house, lands, all that, will receive more in this life because they'll be part of my community and in the life to come, eternal life. Jesus promises that sacrifice now will be acknowledged later. And Paul promises in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that our labour in the Lord will not be empty. It will not be in vain. We can sacrifice now and it will bring eternal results. It empowers sacrifice. It transforms grief. Because Christian, if you believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, if you believe that death has been defanged. Paul's words to the Thessalonians make perfect sense. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. You do not grieve like the rest. It doesn't say so you do not grieve. Death is horrible. Death is wrong. We feel that. But Christian hope transforms that. Because I can stand at the grave of a beloved brother and sister and say, this is not the end. This is not the final word. I can look at my own death and not be freaked out. 
I've kind of passed the midline of most people's lives. I'm now 48. Yes, I can own that. Um, Okay, my grandfather died at 96. That's double 48. Okay, if I make it that far, well, I'm I'm now in the second half. And can I say some of you are much further in the second half than I am? Okay, and some of you might be in the second half and you just don't know about it yet. Okay, but you know what? As Christians, we can go... Death has been defeated. Listen to these words by Dwight Moody. He said, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I will be more alive than I am now. Resurrection hope transforms grief. It doesn't make it go away. Yes, you will miss them. Yes, you will come to those anniversaries. Yes, you will see the person in the street that reminds you of them. And your heart will feel that pain again. But if they are in Christ, your hope is that you will stand with them in eternity and nothing will break that connection. What a hope that is. Now, just as a bit of a taster for next week hope enables forgiveness why let me be brief because i want you to come back next week we've got a whole sermon about it this next week but one of the things we know is that at the end there will be an accounting 2 corinthians 5 verse 20 we will all stand before the judgment seat of christ and give an accounting for deeds done in the body Every single one of us will give an account and justice will be perfectly rendered. Not by us, but by the Lord who can judge the hearts and souls of men and women. And that means that we can forgive. Because even though they might get off in this life, justice will come. It means that we can step back and we can say, I trust as the Lord has promised, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. So it's not me. I don't have to set this right. It doesn't mean you you look at injustice and say it doesn't matter. But there is injustice in this world and there is injustice in your lives that you cannot change. And it can cripple us. And it can distort us. And we can become angry and bitter and vengeful. Or we can hand it over to the judge of all and leave it with him. And as he calls us to do in Matthew 5, he calls us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Why? Because our heavenly father calls us to be his children. And he gives us a hope that transcends death. Let's pray. Father, what a joy to spend this time thinking about the sure and certain hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, I pray for any here who have yet to put their trust in you. Lord, show them that this is real. 
It's not some figment of an imagination 2,000 years ago, but this is real historical fact that your son died and rose again. And Father, the gospel proclaims if we put our trust in him, sins are forgiven, death is defeated, and we are yours. Lord, let us rejoice in that. Let us know the power of the resurrection in our lives each and every day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.